Once upon a time, a director, a DP, and a producer went out to dinner after a long, exhausting location scout. They came across a magic lantern, and the genie inside granted them three wishes, one apiece. The DP went first. He asked to go to the south of France, where the light is perfect, and you're never in a rush. Poof. The director went next. He asked to go to a simple hut in Bali, where he could be alone with his thoughts, and where no one could ask him a question. Poof. Then came the producer, who simply said, Get those two assholes back here right now. Welcome back to the dangerous art of the documentary. I'm your host, Tiller Russell. On today's episode, we have our first conversation with a producer. A producer well on his way to becoming a legend in the world of nonfiction filmmaking. James Gay Reese exploded onto the scene with Exit Through the Gift Shop, a film about, and purportedly by, Banksy. He followed that up with Senna, snagged an Oscar for Amy, and blew out the doors with Formula One on Netflix. Our interview starts with the question my mother always asks, and then ranges far afield from there. So without further ado, I give you a conversation with James Gay Reese. I'm thrilled to uh, to have you uh, this morning. Obviously, your your body of work is absolutely spectacular, and uh, I hope and pray to have the uh, opportunity to collaborate with you at something at some point or another. Sure, man, definitely. It would be great to do that. I'm a massive fan of yours as well, as you know, and uh, I'm sure we'll get there. Awesome. Fingers fingers crossed. I'm I'm looking forward to doing it. Um, so I'd love to spend the bulk of our time um, this morning on Amy because, A, it's, I think, one of my all-time favorite films. And having recently rewatched it, uh, the soundtrack has just been ringing in my ears and, and been the soundtrack to my life since revisiting. It's such, such beautiful work and so powerfully evoked. But before we deep dive Amy, um, I have two questions for you, unrelated. Question one is... The question that my mother asks every time she crosses paths with one, and no matter how many times she does, she always asks the question, um, which is, what exactly is a producer? I would say my role as a producer is to generate what I think are interesting projects that I think people are going to want to watch. And then I build a team out that's going to help me bring that to, to, to life. And then I help, help deliver that. Okay, I love it. So, so a couple of specific additional questions on that front, which is how um, generative is it for you? That is to say, most of the films that you've done, are they, uh, and I guess not only with the films that you've done, but everything that you're developing you know, currently, how much of it is projects where you have a notion or you have a connection to a specific person and you're like, that's a movie and I think that's the director for it versus, um, you know, how much of it is sort of people reaching out to you and being like, man, I want the, I want the guy that made the Banksy doc. Like, you know, how do we get him? Um, like what, what has been that process in terms of birthing these projects? I'd say it's 80, 20, I'd say 80% of the stuff we develop in house and come up with in house and 20% comes in externally. Um, so, you know, it started, obviously, I, having said that, I was brought onto the Banksy film, so that wasn't my baby, but I came onto that and helped him get that over the line. But then I was making Senna simultaneously, and that was my baby. And then 
Amy came to us because of somebody who likes Senna. So it flip-flops around, but most of the stuff we're making at the moment, somebody in this building, because there's a little development team and I've got my partners, somebody in this building, whether it's myself, Paul Martin, or one of the development team have come up and said, right, let's try and put this together. And I'd say then occasionally we get something that comes from outside, like Netflix might ask us to make something or, um, you know, very few things, though, come in externally for no particular reason, just because we're a relatively small company and our bandwidth means that we tend to just do the stuff that we want to do. And, um, you know, on that front, when you are like, how many projects are you juggling at the moment in terms of, you know, in various stages from inception to, you know, in, in production or in post? Like, what does the slate look like? We'll have about 30 things on the slate. I suppose, at this moment in time, 30 fairly active projects um, that are in active development as opposed to just crazy ideas. And there'll probably be another 20 crazy ideas. But yeah, so 30 things in pretty active development, 10 of those in fairly accelerated development. Um, um, and then we're probably in production on, it sort of varies between sort of three or six things at any one time, I suppose. Now you're the uh, you know the first producer that we've that we've interviewed on the, on the podcast, and it's interesting. So what has your path been, um, you know, in terms of sort of being a producer as opposed to being a, a you know a director, and why why become a producer? Again, it's really interesting that question because I was quite artistic at school, and in some ways I maybe should have directed. I don't know. But I find that I actually get a lot of creative satisfaction out of the producing role because I'm, as I said earlier, I'm not just like the money guy or the legal guy. I'm actually very involved in this idea and actually making it good, you know? So I spent a lot of time in the edit. But I just, um, I started off in the, in the movie game. I was making movies beforehand. So I started off uh, on the lot of Paramount 30 years ago, maybe, uh, just as a development executive. I actually started off at Miramax before that in New York. That's then I went to Paramount, um, and then it was funny. Actually, the day I left LA and left our dear friend William Green to come back to London was the day I got my first studio producing gig off the ground um, for a film that actually ended up not happening—a Gabriel Byrne vehicle. Um, so I was just developing movies. You know, I was in that space. I wanted to be a film producer. I thought it sounded cool. I didn't really know what it meant. I sort of, you know, I really like the development process. I've worked on. My stepfather was a director, so. He was in LA at the time, so I was helping him with his projects, reading scripts, giving notes, that kind of thing, typical development stuff. Um, and I was also living in LA, so I was really saturated in, you know, this is, as I said, it's 30 years ago, so I was saturated in the mechanics of Hollywood. I was, I was reading Variety every day. I was really into it. You were immersed. Yeah. I was totally immersed in it, and that's before the streamers. So that was like the old studio system. What were Warner Brothers buying on spec? You know, who, who are Paramount giving a first look deal to? What movies were opening big? You know, all that kind of stuff. So I was really into that stuff. And I really wanted to be a part of that. And um, then I came back to the UK because I was uh, um, hooked up with somebody. My, um, my ex-wife was basically here. The mother of my children was here. So I came back to be with, to be with her. And um, my stepfather just made a film with a working title called Bean, starring Rowan Atkinson. And um, I just went to work in title and said, have you ever thought about, us, about giving Mel, my stepfather, a first look deal? And I'll, I'll run it, basically. So we had like a little, I think, two-year two deal, which rolled on. And I was fundamentally, I became a producer 
by proxy through that basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we did a little film for those guys. And then the first, you know, the first film we did for those guys was Senna. So that was basically the first movie that came out of that deal. Um, and then you know, sort of, you know, there's, there's only one way to produce, right? Which is by doing it. Um, but I, always, I was always satisfied with the, my role as a producer because I felt it was creative enough that, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have that itch to direct. I think if I'd wanted to, it would have happened. I think I'm probably, I've probably found a good balance with creative producing. Well, it's, it's interesting too. I mean, as a creative producer, you're able to juggle a much greater variety of projects than you, than you would be as a director. I mean, I know how all consuming it is for me, you know, and even, you know, directing two series at once, you barely have time to breathe, much less sort of, you know, give your best to anything else. So, so in a way you're able to shape the vision and birth, I think a much greater and, and wider um, footprint of projects than you can as a director, as a producer. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, we have a big show on Netflix called Drive to Survive about the Formula One, you know, behind the scenes of Formula One. We're in season four of that now. And that's a massive undertaking. It shoots all around the world for 10 months of the year. Um, it's a big show for Netflix. And, you know, I'm very across that, but I can do that in a quite a removed way. You know, I'm not on it that day to day. I mean, I'm on all the kind of weekly creatives and stuff like that. And I'm in all the edits, but, you know, we're having to step back a bit from that a little bit because it's a 10 episode show and I've been watching six cuts of every episode. So that's like 60 cuts you've got to sit in on. And that's, right. you know, that's time consuming when that's in, when that's in crunch time. And so I think as the company grows, I'm going to have to step back from that a little bit, but you're right. You know, we get great directors in and then we get great producers to support those directors on the, on the feed stock, certainly. And then we get great showrunners in on the, other, on the more long form stuff. So you, you know, you can, you can pick your battles a little bit and um but you know what it's like so you've got to basically make sure you don't drop the bar quality wise and that's that that's when you get into that well how much is too much you know right. and it's you a know. fine line isn't it i mean and that constantly you have to recalibrate you do and i think you know cliches are true for a reason right but i think it takes a long time to to get a good reputation but you can lose it pretty quickly you know you make three or four duds and you're you know suddenly you're dud guy you know yep. so it's true. It's I think it's got to be, you've got to get that balance right. But, you know, so we're trying to build the company a bit now, but not, not radically. We want to retain the essence of who we are and what we do, because I think there's a certain signature, there's a certain tone and vibe to some of the, a lot of the work we do. And we want to make sure that it doesn't get, too, doesn't get too diluted, you know. Unquestionably. Um, okay, before before deep diving on on Amy, um, this this is just a question that's been burning a hole in my pocket for a while, so I, I have to go ahead and ask. But like, what the fuck is it like to get a call from Banksy? Uh, hey, like, make my movie. Like, run me, break me, break down that experience for me. Sort of what it was like and whatever you can share about it. Do you know what? I'm going to be very honest with you. It was all done through my, basically my flatmate, uh, a lovely lady called Holly Ashwell, or sometimes called Holly Cherry. She, um, she was Banksy's manager. And we lived, before she became Banksy's manager, she and I lived in uh, Beechwood Canyon in Los Angeles, just as flatmates for years. And uh, she then went back to London ahead of me, got a job in this gallery, and then ended up being, they represented Banksy. Then they, Banksy ended up poaching her to basically become his manager. And then I sat down with her in this famous uh, um, private members club here called the Groucho Club. She said, we want to do a film about graffiti. Ba Banksy's going to be involved. We don't really know how yet. 
how do we do it? And I said, we can go to Channel 4 or he can pay for it or he can do, you know, a number of different ways. Anyway, they went off and started making this movie and then she called me back a year later saying, fuck, we're still making this movie. It's gone a bit crazy. We need somebody else to kind of put some eyes on this thing because we don't know where it's going. And the brilliant um, editor, Chris King, who's cut, then subsequently cut Amy Senna Maradona for us, M71, um, he was editing it. And I just got into the edit and helped them basically navigate it a bit because it was, it's quite a weird film anyway, obviously. Exit. Yeah. And it was, it was really weird beforehand. And they sort of injected a lot more humour into it, not because of me, but just that, that's the way it needed to go. Um, and so my actual contact with Banksy was very minimal, if I'm honest. But, um, you know, he also, it was a new experience for him. So, you know, he was doing lots of different things at different times. And so then Holly was running with this project and Chris King was running with it and Jamie DeCruz, who made it with Banksy, he was very hands-on with it. But it definitely ebbed and flowed that project. It became different things at different times. Um, and then, you know, ended up just kind of turning out the way it did rather miraculously and brilliantly. And it was, um, you know, I, for me, that what I love about that film is that I think it's literally the perfect cinematic manifestation of Banksy. It's the essence of Banksy in films. It absolutely you know? is. It's, it's, it's the perfect blend of sort of form and content. And it's so singular in its um, essence, I suppose. You know, there's no movie that is quite like it. In fact, there's no movie that's anything like it. And it is so evocative of who he is as an artist. It's just, a, it's an absolute masterpiece. I know when we, uh, we screened it at Sundance, and it was, it was so fun because Banksy painted the entire town, you know, in the week beforehand and people were like, he's here, he's here. And honestly, I'd stand, I'd go to Main Street and just uh, look at the, the latest piece. And because people heard my British accent, like, it's fucking Banksy, Banksy's here. I'm like, I'm not Banksy. <laughs> I had people following me around the festival for weeks going, you're Banksy, aren't you? I was like, dude, I wish I was Banksy. But um, Amazing. Mistaken and, for Banksy at Sundance. I love it. I know, I know. And then the film screened, had a rapturous reception. And then I remember Jared Leto pin collared me after the screening. He was like, it's fucking bullshit, man. That film's a hoax. That film's a hoax. I was like, it's not a hoax. It's exact. What you see is what you get. He's like, it's a hoax. I know it is. You've got to tell me the truth. I was like, dude, that's a, if that's a hoax, it's the best hoax of all time. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know. I, I love Leto. I'm, I'm a fan and I'm and, uh, and looking forward to work with him on uh, and, lo and looking for and looking forward to working with with him on on something as well um i, I love it that's a be beautiful beautiful story and, and a great uh, paints a beautiful picture of the experience um okay so let's go to amy which again is you know one of my all-time favorite films um and, and and i guess one of the things that i was struck by in revisiting it is when you talk about the sort of signature nature of the work that you've done over the years, and it's sort of particularly, um, you know, acutely true and Amy is where you are making first person films from third person footage, right? Somebody else is shooting something and yet it becomes these incredibly intimate portraits that are evocations, uh, you know, that, that, that are immersive first person films and talk about that kind of the blend of, you know, third person versus first person and, and the crafting of that. It's a really good question actually. And it's, um we sort of made a role for our own backs in the way with Senna because, you know, which is directly related to Amy in a way, because that set out that style. Because 
you know, when we were making Senna, fundamentally, the bottom line was he wasn't around. He was dead, right? So you couldn't interview Senna. So you could interview Alan Prost or somebody else. But do you really want to go from archive of this unbelievably beautiful human being, Anton Senna, at his prime to a talking head of Alan Prost now? Alan Prost is in great nick for his age, but he's still an old man, relatively speaking. And also, we've got him in the picture. At the same, we've got him in archive at the same time. So then we were, we were making, when we were making that film, we were thinking, my God, we've got so much coverage because something like Ayrton Senna was covered so much by so many people. So you could always construct film scenes. We could do a two shot over the shoulder, over the shoulder, you know, whatever you wanted to do because there were so many people filming. Um, but all the time people were saying to us, you can't make a documentary all archive with no talking heads and with no voiceover. It can't be done. People have tried and it hasn't been done. I'm sure somebody back in the day has done it somewhere, but as far as we were told, because we'd only made Exit, right? Which is a mixture. Right. I mean, that had a few talking heads, yep. but to make it entirely archive, we were told it couldn't be done. So then it became this challenge of well, how do we do it? So it just became this process of um, trying to stay in the moment with the archive, even though a film like Senate goes across 10 years, you almost feel like you're traveling through those 10 years at light speed in and amongst that guy's world worldview as it's happening to him, right? Well, it's, 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 it's immersive and unfolding moment by moment, even though a vast period of time is elapsing, a decade is elapsing. Yeah, and that's the beauty of Chris King and the, the, the power of Chris King's editing, because actually you can, you know, one scene may cut to two years later, but you feel like you, you haven't jumped two years. You're still on this, you're, you're hurtling forwards. So even though you're not necessarily seeing it specifically through Ayrton Senna's eyes or Amy's, Amy Winehouse's eyes, you are in their moment and you're reacting to what they're reacting to, right? So I think just the sheer fact that you don't cut out of the archive to Talking Heads, so you don't, the timeline's moving forward, but in an organic way, as opposed to shifting backwards and forwards, you don't get backwards and forwards. You're just going forwards all the time. And so... It oh, that's, that's, that's interesting. Structurally, what you're saying is by not using talking heads, you don't have the kind of structural time shifts and cuts. You're able to make it a present tense unfolding story. Yeah, you don't break the moment. You don't break out of the moment ever. You know, you, you basically you're in the moment and then you're in another moment. Then you're in another moment as opposed to going in, then out, then in, then out, you know. Um, and so Amy was difficult though because the second half of her life was filmed so little compared to the first half of her life or compared to an Ant Senna character. So the first half of the movie, um, the whole film was incredibly hard to make, to be honest with you. It was a really, if I'm honest, it's quite an unpleasant experience in some ways. In what, in what regard? You tell, me, tell me more. Well, being brutally frank, you know, the bottom line is that we were asked to make the movie by her record company, who are big fans, big friends of mine now. We made 71 with those guys as well. So that's a good relationship. But some of her family members were involved in, this, in the decision to make the film. And then, you know, about six months into the film, we realized that some of those family members were the problem, mm -hmm. you know? And that becomes a very, very awkward uh, dialogue because, you know, as documentary makers, when you are, you're, doing interviews with people who are sharing their honest recollection of what went wrong. And it's your duty as a filmmaker to, to make the right film. And you're like, you know, suddenly you find yourself in a very difficult position because 
you're going to have to say things that certain people who are very close to the material don't want to hear. And so, 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 so point of clarification so that I'm clear, which is when you're saying they are in that sense, you know, part of the problem, do you mean part of the problem of Amy's life and, 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 and death or part of the problem in terms of obstacles to getting the film made? Not, no, so it's the former, yes. I mean, you know, some, some people close to her who, you know, you know their, their decision-making is, as is evidenced by the film, was questionable, right? Um, and then obviously, the, it's an ob- not an obstacle to getting the film made, but an obstacle to getting the right film made. So, you know, because obviously it's very tricky territory because, you know, I'm not, I was, wasn't related to everyone else. I didn't know her. And so you're sort of telling somebody that was related to her something they don't agree with, you know, and, um, but it's very hard because when you've got a lot of people saying it was like this and you've got two people saying, no, no, it was like this. You're like, well, I think that the, these 500 people over here kind of, you know, they can't all be wrong. Right. So it was just, it just morally became very tricky to navigate the right path through it because, um, you know, on the one hand, I want to make the best film possible. But you know, on the other hand, who am I to upset people? Do you know what I mean? So you have no, to tell the it, truth. It, it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating what you're saying because what essentially I think, let me, let me sort of repitch it to you and see if, see if I'm clear, which is when you are getting these conflicting narratives, like at a certain point as a filmmaker, you must choose to construct a certain story that may well piss off the people that have a different point of view. And, but to do what is right for the material, there is this, and without being sort of melodramatic about it, but I always do feel like there is kind of a spiritual obligation or this is like an undertaking where there is a responsibility to the story, to the content, to the, you know. And to the person. And to the person. You know, so that was kind of the thing is, you know, and again, you know, it's so subjective, right? But we would get into situations. I remember one time we were interviewing somebody in New York and it was particularly intense. And Asif and I came out of the recording studio and we looked at each other and we're like, why are we doing Why are we doing this? This is so fucking dark and so painful, even as a completely removed party from the actual events that we're talking about. It's still so painful to be hearing this stuff and to think, what should we do with this stuff? Do we want to do this? Do we actually want to do this? Should we just, should we walk away, you know? And then it was at that point where we were like, no, you know what, we should, we've got to just push through because actually, she, A, she was so misunderstood. She was so maligned by the British media and the American media. She was so misunderstood and we felt like, you know, it was our duty to basically um, give purpose to her legacy in a way and to, you know, to shine a new light on her legacy because she really did deserve that because the talent had been lost in the madness, you know, and in the tabloid right. craziness. And so ultimately we want, that was our kind of like, our, our kind of like moral justification was like, basically we think that if we do this right, the good will outweigh the bad and people will see her in a new light. And we may be, people may put a target on our back for doing it, but you know what, let's take our chances because we think that we've got enough of a handle on her that we can tell a really honest story about her that will basically people, will, um, force people to reevaluate her in a more positive light, which is, I think it did in the main that movie. And I'm proud of that because, you know, it, she was an easy target. 
you know, she had severe addiction issues, as we know, and yet pe people in this country, and like I, I gave this kind of very spontaneous talk at the BAFTAs, where I was like, you know, you know, addiction's a proper disease. We all know that right now. But for some reason, it's okay to basically completely eviscerate somebody with a very bad disease, you know, in the national press. It was sport, and it just shouldn't be allowed. So I'm well, it's, I'm not. I'm not sure it had ever had, like, I mean, that's the sort of explosion of the media, right, where everything is relentlessly covered 24 hours a day and where things are... What used to be news was the threshold, right? It had to yeah. have sort of like relevance to, it became entertainment and watching somebody melt down was entertainment. And as you said, sport. So then to sort of, you know, take that, in which you have this kind of sort of like astonishing documentation of the public meltdown and refashion that those raw materials into an intimate and loving and thoughtful nuanced portrait. It's a, it's, it's alchemy in a way. It is, you know, and you know, better than, better than I do, you know, the weird thing about that process and the, why I love the process still and why I still get a buzz out of doing it is because fuck on that film, honestly, we were like, A, it was painful and B, we couldn't quite find it. Right. We had all these bits and we had this incredible interview stuff. We had this amazing footage. And it was like, yeah, but why are we making it? And, you know, because it's not the, anybody can do the where and the when, right? It's like, did A, did A, A to B to C to D, that's fine. We can all do that. It's the, that other thing, the other layer you find, which is the, oh, this is the magic bit, which is the, why are we doing this? And this is what we're going to say about this, but nobody has ever said before. Look at this in a way that nobody's looked at it before. And it's going to move your needle one way or another, as opposed to just being reminded of the facts. But we couldn't, and I, and I disagree quite a lot about what, it, what the point of the film was. And that's, I think, was a good thing, actually, because we disagreed quite a lot about Senna. And it was out of that kind of tension that we kind of managed to find that bit of kryptonite or whatever you want to call it, you know, in those movies. But on Amy, we're like, aren't we just part of the problem here? We're just, you know, we're basically, you know, we're kind of just re-churning a story that's been churned a million times. And so we've got to, we've got to add, we've got to be additive. We can't just be repetitive. And then it is that alchemy bit when suddenly, and it's Chris King again, you know, takes a lot of credit for this. It's suddenly, I don't know, this is the beauty of the process, isn't it? It goes from being just a collection of scenes strung together to suddenly having a sense of completeness or sense of purpose, right? And the movie starts to say something and you're like, fuck, I think things, things, something's happening with this. And then, it's just, it's just it's an emotional hit, isn't it? It just suddenly, suddenly you connect and you start to connect with the story in a much more emotional way than you even were previously for the rest of the year in the edit. And then you have to just kind of go for that. Uh, so beautifully articulated. And let me sort of share something. Here's what you brought up for me as, as you were saying it. When I set out, set out to make Night Stalker, it was this, there was this very kind of obvious, overt um, procedural story. Right. Which is and I think the reason and I was talking to Joe Berlinger on the on, on a recent podcast, too. And I said, what is it about the kind of like public obsession with murder and us as filmmakers doing it? And he had a really astute analysis. He said, here's the thing. Crime has an inherent dramatic structure. 
where there is a collision of protagonist and antagonist. There are life and death stakes, and there is sort of the mechanics of the justice system giving you a three-act structure. So there is inherent kind of satisfaction to a crime story, which I thought, A, brilliant, true. And, and then as I was making Night Stalker, it was this very um, linear, boring film, right? It was a collection of causal events. Okay, this murder happens. Okay, we find this clue. And it was inert. It was lifeless. And then suddenly, at a certain point, we found the heart of Gil Carrillo's story, which was his connection with his father and the fact that um, you know, he, he would have been just a, just a fuck up from the streets or whatever, and then finally catches the case of a lifetime, is able to, um, you know, take this predator off of the streets and kind of accomplish what, his, what would have made his father proud, but his father's no longer there, right? And suddenly when we screened that cut and I could just, I looked around the room and everybody in the room had like tears in their eyes and I felt them too. And suddenly for the first, and it was way deep into it. And it was like, okay, now we got a movie. And- yeah, I love that. And you know what, I got, when I watched it, I felt exactly the same. It just, it really elevated it for me. And I was totally, I, I was in, do you know what I mean? I was really completely invested emotionally in it from that point on. He's such a likable character anyway, you know. And uh, when you understand a bit more about him, it completely lands. Well, it's all, you know, which, which I guess where, where I'm driving to is it is all about producing a profound emotional reaction in an audience. And I think that's what so grabbed me vis-a-vis Amy is... I was in love with her and I was heartbroken and I was pained by the bad decisions. And, and then I thought what was so sort of one of the many like sort of brilliant dramatic constructions was the um, deconstruction of the songs. So you take rehab, for example, and then you meet the father and then you actually go through seeing the lyrics of it and the performances and the kind of, you know, use of that. And it's echoes over time by the time you get to the end of the film, you know, and it, it like suddenly it was a great song already, but the you added like Z axis to the depth of it. And, and I thought it was just astonishing. So uh, A, just, you know, brilliant work. But B, my question, I guess, going back to where you were earlier is, when did you unlock it where it suddenly was like, okay, we got a movie. What was the layer? I think, I think, I think you've just nailed it in a way because I think that... Um... Oh, well, this is the kind of generally the editing process in terms of finding the heart of it, you know, is a kind of very subtle and hard thing to define and to, uh, to shorthand here and now because it takes so long, you know, it's a very incremental process, you know, it's kind of, you know, days go by and, you know, weeks go by, months go by and you're kind of, you're trying to find that kind of emotional focus. But I think that definitely one of Asset's, you know, amazing ideas in that film was to use the music in that way because... She was using, writing music as a sort of like for self-care, right? Mm-hmm. She would write her songs down exactly as her life was unfolding in order to basically make sense of it and to not go mad. It was the only way she could kind of like keep herself vaguely sane was to kind of process it through this musical process. And 
it's a complete gift, really, when you think about it. When you have somebody who writes that autobiographically, to basically break down the music and to use it as a narrative tool to drive your story forward, supported by archive, I mean, it is a gift, you know? I mean, it's very hard to do, but if you can make it work, then I think it's incredibly compelling because you are, you're seeing the creative process and life coexist in that moment, you know? Um, so no, I thought it was really, it was a really smart call by Asif to do that. And um, thank you. And uh, so yeah, it was that and combined with just the, I mean, we cut that movie for probably, I don't know, two years, you know, it was a long edit. Yeah, um, I've been there. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a thing. And uh, um, yeah, so it was just all these things coming together. Um, and then, you know what it's like, you have to show it to people who were there and you have to show it to people who knew her really well. And you have to sort of say, are we on the right track here? Is this, you know, what would she think of this movie? Do you know what I mean? And like, are we getting closer to really telling people who she really was? Um, and, you know, we, we got a vastly positive uh, feedback on that, apart from one or two people, you know, one or two people hated it. Well, and, 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 that, and that's also a part of it, right? Which is while you are seeking that, you, you can't necessarily trust what other people are saying either, right? Like, and you have to disregard because some people will be getting gored by the film and some people will, um, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing that, um, and, and it's, you know, I work very much the same way where I'm sort of constantly soliciting input and feedback from people. And then at a certain point, I have to use a strong filter where I'm like, and I don't give a shit now what you say. I have to trust what my yeah. instincts are about the material. Yeah. You know, I've got a question for you, which I'm really interested by, because we were just speaking to another. We had somebody come in today. There's an Oscar nominated uh, doc director and he's just a friend of the company. We're just talking shit. And we we're talking about different processes because, you know, he scripts everything to within an inch of its life, right? And the way that I worked with Asif in the past, especially on Amy and actually all three films and 71, you know, but on something like Senate, they were like 5,000 hours of archive. We just stopped. We could, we could still be archiving that film now. I'm not joking. Ten years later, there was that much archive, right? But we were like 5,000 hours, okay? So Asif's approach has always been... I want to see all the archive. I want to watch it all. And I want to have a huge assembly. It could be 20 hours long. And I'm going to slowly work out what the movie is, right? As opposed to, and I'm slightly like, well, let's start off with an idea for what the movie is. So he's there and I'm here. <laughs> sort of slowly over two or three years go like that. But I don't believe in scripting necessarily on feature docs either. I also, with archive films, but this is anyway. I like to you know, have an idea what the film is try to support that narrative, try to build it out and then, you know, see where we land. And that's just doing fundamentally the same thing, but he's doing it very much through pictures. So, you know, some directors, they'll do it all in sync first and then they'll use the pictures secondarily. So I'm just interested to know what your process is. How, how much do you script or how much do you just go through the uh, archive? It, no, it's an amazing, it's, it's a great question. And, and I think in a way you also, I just want to point out, just gave the perfect answer to what a producer does, which is, okay, director says, I want the like 5,000 hours and I'm going to winnow it down. And a producer says like, no, wait a minute, what's the fucking story? Because we're actually going to construct something. And it is oftentimes from that creative tension and sort of the push and pull of smart people lovingly wrestling with the same material that 
Like that's what, that's what a beautiful partnership and, and, and what a great producer does, I think is sort of like challenge you to define and get to the heart of the thing and hear both their approach as well as honor yours. And I think what you just described is like, is the, is, is the sort of perfect definition of a great producer. Um, so my process has evolved quite a bit. Um, and it's interesting because I've been, you know, as I told you sort of starting out, directors are never on other people's sets. So I never know how anybody else has done this. I've just sort of stumbled my way forward. And one of the great joys of this podcast has been talking with other people and being like, so I literally keep being like, ah, so that's how you do this shit. I never <laughs> knew, you know? Um, and, and Mark Lewis, who we did, um, you know, who we were talking, uh, who we, who we uh, you know, did an episode with and who talked about don't fuck with cats said the same thing rigorously scripted everything going in. And I was literally just sort of like speechless because that's not at all the way I work where in a funny way, I feel like never have I actually made the movie that I thought I was going to make when I set out to do it. And I think that if I did, I would be bored and dissatisfied because there wasn't a process of discovery in it and in some way or another. And, and maybe that's just my sort of, you know, dumb, stumbling, intuitive approach on something, which is I sort of start out with a sort of a spark or a sense of what it might be or a tonal thing. You know, for example, making Operation Odessa, I was like, man, I want to make an Elmore Leonard book. You know, I want it to be a caper. I want it to be fun. I want it to be funny. I want, and, and I thought, you know, what's so brilliant about those Elmore Leonard books is it's dumb guys in over their head sort of like global stakes you know and and, and like, achieve that and, and and that's what and that's what it felt like you know what i mean it's like okay is this guy a bumbling moron or like a diabolical mastermind and like either way you know he was having the time of his life um and so for me it's a there's sort of like an intuitive okay this is what i think it is and then what I would say process-wise, which is, which is sort of, uh, I think, um, begun to sharpen it a little bit is now what we do, and I've some, I'm somebody who has, you know, I've spent, you know, time as a writer in Dick Wolf writer's rooms for a number of years and, you know, made feature films and whatever. So I have that, um, the narrative toolkit also to apply to doc. So increasingly what, what we have begun to do is, and I'm also a big believer in collaboration, right? Which is really, there's this sort of like notion of, uh, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, and maybe it's true for other people, but sort of like brilliant mastermind, you know, auteur filmmakers. Me, I'm as good, I surround myself with super smart people, solicit their counsel the entire time, um, am not afraid to ask for help constantly, um, and, and kind of, and, and believe in that group process, right? Um, and so what we've begun to do is, put together many writers rooms before the films actually start when it's okay who are all the people we're going to interview now what is all the archival that exists are we going to use this or do we need to transform it or does it all need to be original photography kind of determining what the constituent elements of it are going mm -hmm. to be what we're going to leave in and leave out and then 
And then what I actually literally like to do is kind of pitch out and put together like we did, like we do in narrative writers rooms. Okay, this is roughly what I think the sort of scene to scene is, or if it's a multi-part series, this is what I think is the end of episode one, that's the bounce to episode two. And then what ends up happening is by having a, you know a, a smart people grinding on it, producers and, and and sometimes even editors before anything has been shot, you begin to kind of find a spine going into it, such that by the time then we're ready to shoot, I may not know exactly where it's going, and it's certainly not scripted in any way. But there's been a thoughtful discussion of assessing and grinding on the material to think that okay, it seems like it's going here. Here are the parts, and then I conduct. You know, in, in a weird way, I feel like my films are to date, and, and I'd lo love to go beyond this, but are sort of oddly conventional, right? They're interview driven films, past tense stories with compelling archival, and then, you know, whatever the original photography is that's sort of lyrical and evocative of the thing. It's actually very sort of pedestrian in, in a way. Um, and and so I like to conduct all of the interviews because what ends up happening is even if I don't necessarily go back through the transcripts or I'm entrusting because I've really made like, like you have amazing editors, you know, and fellow producers, but at least when I conduct the interviews, I've kind of, I've locked it all in. It's in my mind. Uh, and I know, you know, where, um, odd little bits and bobs may lie that somebody else may think, oh, that's irrelevant. And I'm actually think, oh, no, that's exactly the piece that we need here. And, and knowing where it is, being able to sort of cull it. And so, and then turning it over and entrusting it to editors so that by the time we get into the edit, um, and, and I work with this guy named David Holthouse. Sorry to belabor the, the question, but but you asked. So That's no, it's really interesting. I'm giving it to you. Um, David Holthouse is, is, a, is a sort of partner and collaborator of mine. Um, and he literally, as we'll go through kind of pitching story back and forth, then and kind of beat by beat, like, okay, this is what I think the story is. Then he will literally script it from the interviews. Here's the handoffs. Here's the alternatives. And not just one way, but kind of all of the ways. So that then that's handed to an editor. And the editor is encouraged to, okay, if you don't like it, throw it away. Depart from it. Make it better. But instead of just waiting into the edit, there's at least... Um, a napkin sketch, you know, or a blueprint for what the vision of it can be. And so it, when you then decide, hey, jump off the rails here, throw away the outline, throw away the beats, it's at least um, done deliberately. Yeah, exactly. So that's really interesting because, you know, what I love, that, I love that expression, grinding the material, because when you're making, when you are, if you're not necessarily specifically scripting, when you're just grinding the material, at least at the end of that process, you know what it's not, right? Right. You know, that's Absolutely. the thing, you know, it's not that. It could be a version of this, but it's not that, you know. So I think that's the way we approach it as well. It's like, it's not going to be that film. It's not going to be that film. It's not going to be that film. It could be one of these three, but it's not those three. And I think that is, I love that way of looking at it. Um, and um, for me, that is the most, I love the organic nature of that process. I mean, listen, we had a script on Senna, but it was always behind the research. Do you know what right. I mean? It was always out of yep. date. 
like you know you yep. know and obviously we knew what the shape of his life was and all the rest of it so yeah there were broad there were broad story beats in there but in terms of the actual emotional direction of the story that had to be found you know we couldn't script that i don't think so um I'm well, sure you're, it works you're, you're, you're groping toward the ineffable right at the end of the day like that which elevates it to the next level and makes it something beyond the, a kind of collection of facts or dates or data is like that shit is voodoo it's not um science it is voodoo you're right it's voodoo it is voodoo and you know it's a funny process, isn't it? Because once you've done it, you can't remember how you did the voodoo. Or, you know, if, you get, if you get lucky enough to hit some voodoo, then once it's gone, it's gone. And you're like, shit, that's, we're going to have to try and, you know, kind of do some witchcraft and find that again next time, you know, because you can't, you can't just buy it. Well, and each one, I think, requires its own. And um, you never get there the same way twice. You know, yeah. it's like you sort of, I was just reading this um, sort of mystical tracked by martin buber i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing it correctly but he you know um who who said you know in, in sort of a different um um context like oftentimes what the process is for the artist is you're standing in front of the material and you know that its shape is in there in some way or another and you're kind of partially conjuring, partially begging, awaiting for it to like make itself manifest. And I thought, God, that, that what a beautiful evocation of, of, of what that process is, you know? It really is, you know. And do you know what I love about the voodoo? It, it may be different for you, but it's certainly true for me is that you have to earn the right man to be in the room of the voodoo. It takes, it's so, you know, accessing that shit, if it happens, it doesn't always happen, but when it does happen, there are no shortcuts. You've got to work so hard to find it because it's just... It's a direct correlation to the amount of blood, sweat, and tears you put in. I think, right? It absolutely. Uh, you have to work at it and work at it, and sometimes it's you know it comes more easily than others, but it's never straightforward. Um, let me ask a sort of banal process thing, um, because because again, I'm sort of learning so much from doing this. Which is when you're conducting these interviews for um, you know, say for Amy or, or for Senna, uh, you know, and, and let's stick with Amy for, for argument's sake and sort of clarity's sake. Um, are those interviews conducted on camera with the intention that subsequently they're just going to be audio interviews or are they conducted merely as audio interviews so that you have, because there is a different kind of intimacy in audio only interviews than there is, you know, when you have the whole apparatus and bloody affair there, how does that work? Yeah, no, it's never on camera. We only did one interview on camera for Amy, and that was with the rapper Most Deaf, um, yeah, it's now called Yassine Bey. But that was for different reasons. But no, fundamentally, every single interview was done audio only. And assets are master at this, I have to say, because, you know, so many people didn't want to talk to us on Amy. They were like, I don't want to go near that story. It's toxic. It's dark. I'm unhappy about it still. It's too early. I don't want to talk about it. So we would say, okay. And sometimes it would take a year of convincing somebody to give us an hour-long interview. But what Asif would say was, okay, come, we use the same studio in Soho Square for all our films, really. And Asif turns down the lights and makes the people feel comfortable. He obviously has an agenda of questions he wants to get through. And then he's, you know, he, invariably people say, okay, you've got one hour or two hours, and it'll turn into six or eight, like that. And he just literally starts with, tell me your name and tell me, just tell me about yourself. And he eases into it that way. 
And he very, very slowly maneuvers people into the position he wants them to be in. But the think, thinking behind not doing it on camera is that people are just automatically more relaxed. They're not worried about what they look like. <clears throat> they stop being worried about what they sound like. They just get into the groove. It's dark, it's atmospheric. He's very good at making people feel at ease. He's very patient, he's very gentle. And, but he can be obviously very challenging if he needs to be. And he's very brave, I have to say. I mean, I've seen him do some stuff which I wouldn't have done. Um, and he gets people to go, he gets people there, do you know what I mean? And um, that's definitely, you know, he's got many, many skills, but he's very, very good at that stuff. And um, yeah, so never on camera. It's a whole different ballgame on camera. I mean, you that's know. So, that's so fascinating. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm riveted to learn this. So um, do you ever in the edit then be like, God, I wish we had, I, I want to be able to cut to so-and-so's face now, or once you have sort of conceptually made the decision, this is the kind of movie we're making and we have the archival to drive it and carry it. Um, is, you know, does, that, does that sort of questioning ever come up? No, because the, the ideal scenario is that you establish somebody in picture through the archive, right? Say her boyfriend, um, Blake, right? He'll say something in the, in the actual audio, in the actual archive, like, hey, Amy, come over here. And then in the interview, you'll pick, he'll continue it by saying, and then she came in the room and I kissed her. And so you basically, you, use the, you blend the contemporary interview in with the archive. And so on 71, for example, people were saying, because, you know, we obviously refined it. People are like, well, what's, what's, what's archive interview and what's contemporary interview? They were like, it all sounds, we can't tell, which is well, you, you want people to not be able to see the joins, right? So you just then blend the interviews in with the audio archive so that it's just an immersive one-stop shop, basically, and people don't think they're in or out of it, like we talked about earlier. So it just keeps on going forward all the time. Now, I would imagine that uh, a defining aspect of that is you have to have a vast and evocative archive to like one of the decisions to make a film like this is do we have the archive to support it? Is that true? It is. I mean, you know, it's interesting that, um, you know, you're seeing more and more on Netflix, you know, if you think about maybe the Epstein thing, right? Um, very limited archive. And then what they're doing with that model, which is interesting, I mean, listen, your show is a beautiful blend of um, talking head interviews, really great recon in your show, which I told you before when we spoke, I was amazed at the kind of quality of the recon you shot and obviously archive, right? But in the, without casting dispersions, within some other shows on some other streamers, where the, I find the, the atmospheric recon is very generic, they're trying too hard with the interviews, like taking people back to the scene of the crime. I mean, just, I don't know. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm, yeah. I'm not a fan of that kind of uh, way of doing it, but I, but I get why they do it, because they have they the archive. Um, and, you know, we have a few projects on our slate where we, with the amount of archives is going to be questionable, and it's going to throw up some interesting questions for us in terms of process. But I'll tell you what I'm really fascinated by, which I'm sure you think about a lot as well, is, you know, and maybe it's because I've done so much archive, is I want to try new forms. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm very happy to continue to use archive. But apart from recon, apart from talking heads, apart from archive, apart from animation, apart from seed, what, how are we going to make documentaries new? What are we going to do with the tools at our disposal to deliver these stories in a new and fresh way to an audience? 
because uh, I've got, I wouldn't say I've got archive fatigue, but I am intrigued by different ways of telling stories now. And I don't know what the answer is yet, but um, I definitely want to explore it on some of the things we have coming up. I would like to um, help find the answer to that question with you on something that we work together on, because I am very much in that same place where I feel like you have seen the evolution of nonfiction storytelling in print sort of kind of go to the next level and you have seen it in podcasts go to the next level. And in a way I feel like nonfiction film uh, is due for a dramatic evolution and step forward. And it's something that is very much kind of acutely on my mind and um, in the interest of, of sort of like wrapping this up and bringing it full circle uh, having the opportunity to work with a, producer like you as you have articulated both your process and the journey in making these films and that desire to kind of grapple with it and take it to the next level it's exactly where I'm at as a director and as a filmmaker so I uh you know to bring it full circle really do hope and pray that we have the chance to kind of tackle that and and and, and do it together because um non filmmaking is ready for that next step it totally is. I mean, you know, do you remember what it is like watching The Act of Killing for the first time, that Joshua Oppenheimer's movie? And that, that was like, that was like, fuck, <laughs> I haven't seen that before. Do you know what I mean? He changed the and game. That, it did. And, you know, I don't think anything's come along since then, really, which has blown my doors off in quite the same way. Um, and Bold, you know, incredibly brilliant filmmaking and delivered so intensely well, but ballsy as fuck as well, you know, so... Um, yeah, more of that. And obviously that was a very story-specific situation, but he did it in such an innovative way and bold, bold way. But yeah, I mean, listen, it's not easy because there are certain constraints on unscripted, right? But there has to be other elements that can be brought into the mix that kind of like change the game a bit. And um, we should continue to talk about it too because I'd love to work with you as well. And finding the right story and the right, you know, marrying that to a really innovative approach would be so exciting. Amen. I hear you. Thank you so much for your time this morning and, and for the candor and the, and the thoughtful discussion. It was absolutely completely illuminating and inspiring for me. So I'm so glad uh, to call you, you know, to be both a fan and a friend. And uh, I can't wait to have the chance to work with you, my friend. Uh, listen, I really enjoyed it, dude. Anytime. And listen, I'll be calling you very shortly. We'll get something going. <laughs> Outstanding. That sounds great. All right, dude. Take care. Lots of love. Take care, buddy. Be good. See you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. And thank you to James Gay Reese for taking the time to explain what in the hell a producer actually does. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. See you soon on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. And the sound, magic, and mix comes from Nathaniel, post-up audio in Los Angeles. Music by Zydepunk. Additional guitar by Steve Pagliaro. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Bradley Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Please don't forget to subscribe. And thanks for listening. <laughs>